Good morning, church. Let's declare what we believe this morning as there is power in the name of Jesus. Would you stand with us as we declare that this morning, church?
Jesus' name. We believe in your strength and your power. It's in your name and the hope that comes from your name. Sing it out with me. There's a name that levels mountains. Carves out highways through the sea. I've seen the power unravel battles right in front of me. Oh, yeah. There's a faith. And there's a faith that stands defiant. Sends Goliath to his knees. I've seen his praise. I've seen his praise unravel shackles right off my feet. Oh yeah, that's the power. That's the power of your name. Just the mention makes a way. Giants fall and strongholds break. Your spirit's breaking out, your kingdom 
was born a perfect image, made to be a friend of God, made to dwell within his presence. It's where we all belong, the Holy Spirit. i
Hey, good morning. Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. We are so glad that you are hanging out with us today, whether you're online, maybe watching for the first time, maybe somebody invited you and you decided to check us out online. Uh, whether you're in the building, outside, in the, uh, the worship venue, we're excited you're here. I'll be afterwards hanging out, meeting new people, finding out your story. I just met uh, a new person in between hours, and it was just a, an exhilarating discussion. So please don't be afraid. Come and say hello, and uh, I'd love to get to know you a little more. Uh, before we jump in, I want to remind everybody that it is growth group season, and so we take about 24 weeks a year as a church, and we dive into smaller circles. And so we're going to start a session of growth groups. We believe it's a place where you'll grow the most. And so we would like to encourage you to, when you leave today, head to the table, find a group that matches you, uh, whatever you're looking for, mentorship or same life stage, whatever it might be, Lisa will be there. She will give you the best idea as to which group might be the best for you. I know there's several new groups that are starting this session. One led by the most beautiful lady in this church. She's uh, doing a women's group uh, during the week and during the daytime. And so if that fits your schedule, uh, obviously uh, for other ladies, you're welcome to see if that group still has spots. I don't know if it's already, oh, there's three spots left in that group. So uh, there are other groups as well. You're going to begin to know some of our leaders as we bring them on the stage in the next several weeks. As we say to you, don't let them be alone on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, whenever their group meets. And so there's a place for you to uh, kind of uh, get connected, live life together, become part of the family rather than just attending and, and receiving, it's a place where you can be a part of the family of God and do the one another's with each other. So we want you to take that next step, uh, and groups are going to be opening up soon. So make sure you take a look. All right. With that being said, uh, let me just dive into uh, our message together. I, 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 I hate bringing up these kind of illustrations because people make fun of me about them afterwards. Uh, but, you know, there is this thing called DYI or do-it-yourself, and the idea is if you do it yourself, you do it for less, is what I thought you were going to say. But anyway, <laughs> so, so you do it yourself, do it for less, right? And so I have taken, you know, the, uh, you know, as a man of the house, I will do these things, and, and it seems like every time they, <laughs> it turns out sour. And, and there are people in this church who never take notes on any other thing that I say in a message, except for when I talk about a do-it-yourself project that has gone sour. And they're like, yeah, I remember the one about the sliding glass door, and then there was the floors, and, the, and they just have all, and, and you know, and so I I kind of hate sharing them, but at the same time, it works really good with the message, and so I'm going to share it. Here's another one that I've never shared before. It was a day I came home several years ago and found out that my garbage disposal is no longer working. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sometimes you can reset those things, and they will work again, and so I reset it, and it turned out it was just fried. It was done. And so I went to the local Home Depot or whatever it was, and I bought another garbage disposal unit, and I put it in there, and you can, you can, be, you, you, you can imagine my amazement and surprise and excitement when I turned on the water and it went down the drain. I looked under the cover and nothing was leaking. And I thought to myself, I'm saving money. Probably would have cost $200 to have somebody come in and install that, but nope, not when you have me. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, happily, uh, honey, flip the switch. The, the uh, disposal's working. Everything's looking good, right? And so the next day, 24 hours later, I realized that the dishwasher's not working. My, my daughter says, the dishwasher's not. I'm like, what? And here I'm having a pity party. Like, God, how is this fair? 24 hours in consecutive days, the, the garbage disposal goes out, and then the dishwasher goes out? Cannot be right. I'm a pastor. 
That's wrong. <laughs> and so I'm whining to God as if, you know, he ranks things that way. And then it, 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 it appeals to my heart. You know what? It's not like it was 20 years ago. We have a little bit of a savings fund. So go to Home Depot again, buy yourself a new dishwasher, buy the dishwasher, go, and I install it. Why? Because I'm saving money. And so I install that thing and it works. And we're like, look, press on. And my daughter does the dishes and puts the, a load in the dishwasher and it's working. I'm like, good, at least I know for the next 10 years or so, we're not gonna have a problem with the garbage disposal. We're not gonna have a problem with the dishwasher because they're brand new and I installed them both and we're saving money. That is until about an hour later when I, my daughter goes, hey dad, the dishwasher's not working. I'm like, what? She says, you know what, when I open, it's supposed to be drying and there's like three inches of water at the bottom of the dishwasher. I'm like, that's crazy, it's brand new. It just came from Home Depot, it can't be broken. And the weirdest thing is that's the same problem that was happening with the old dishwasher too. How can the new dishwasher have the same problem as the old dishwasher? It's like there's a problem between the hose that goes from the dishwasher back to the Garbage disposal, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys all know. It's like it's being blocked. A couple of YouTube videos later, I realized there's a plastic piece on a new garbage disposal that you have to chisel out so that water can leave the dishwasher and go into, into the garbage disposal where it drains out. So what that means is the old dishwasher wasn't broken but it's long gone now, it's been disposed of. And what that means is the new dishwasher isn't broken either, but that doesn't matter because Home Depot's got my $700 because I'm saving money. And here I was all like, you know, emotionally in a funk with God, like why you let this happen and here I'm trying to do your work and all of a sudden there's all these problems and really the whole time I was the issue. Like I was the problem and nothing to do with God. I'm emotionally distraught. It wasn't God at all. It was me the whole time. I had misplaced my disappointment on God as a source of the problem. And yet I was a source of the problem the whole time. Would anybody be willing to admit that you've done that before? Yeah, yeah, we all do those kind of things. My guess is that some, somewhere along the way, maybe not with your dishwasher or your garbage disposal, but someplace you have misplaced or your frustrations, your disappointments, and your distresses. What's the real source of our dysfunctions, and how do we find relief? Isn't it interesting how sometimes we can find an unexpected source to our distress? Like it wasn't God at all, it was me. But is there an unexpected source for our healing? What do I do with my self-made emotional funkiness in those situations and where should I look for reprieve? For that, I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16 together. Love for you to turn there. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 23 today. Hopefully you brought your bound Bible or your phone or something. I do ask you to highlight, uh, circle, underline. So if you bring something or use your finger on your phone, your iPad, your tablet, whatever it is, and dive into this and saturate yourself in the word of God together. The overarching question today is what realities can we sometimes come across as it relates to our emotional dysfunctions? What realities can we sometimes come across as it relates to our own emotional dysfunctions? And, and as I've kind of illustrated in the opener, uh, the first thing we can find is there can be an unexpected source for our agony. You can think that your source of agony is coming from over here, but really it's coming from over here. You can displace that on God even when you yourself are the issue without even realizing that you're the issue. There can be an unexpected source of agony 
um, in situations? What realities can we sometimes come across as it relates to our own emotional dysfunctions? Sometimes we misplace where our agony comes from. I want you to see that in, chapter, in verses 14 through 17. It says this, watch along as I read. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I'd love for you to highlight that, underline that, circle that. A harmful spirit from the Lord. From who? The Lord tormented him. Saul's servant said to him, behold, you, a harmful spirit from God, there it is again, is tor tormenting you. Let our Lord, meaning you king, now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from the Lord, there it is again, third time, is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Brings us back to our question, what realities can we sometimes come across as it relates to our own emotional dysfunctions? Well, we, there can be an unexpected source for our agony. In this situation, unexpectedly, it seems like God, according to our text, is sending evil spirits to hound Saul. At least that's what it seems like on face value. The Spirit of God has departed Saul, as we've seen in, in, in our series, and the hand of God is now on David. I've left you, Saul. My hand of protection is off of you, and I'm putting my hand anointing and, 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 and um, filling into David, who's going to be the new king. Saul, not you. David, yes, you. That's happening, and as the hand of God leaves Saul, so comes in these tormenting spirits. Divine favor has left Saul and gone to David, and as divine favor has left Saul, these tormenting spirits have come upon Saul. Now, this provides a little bit of a theological problem. Actually, not a little bit. It's a large theological problem. It's a problem that's been debated for centuries. I don't necessarily believe that I'm going to answer it completely for you today, but I'm at least going to introduce you to the problem, and that is this. Can God send tormenting spirits? Certainly the writer of 1 Samuel acknowledges this fact, and even his own servants of Saul acknowledge that God is sending these evil spirits, tormenting you, terrifying you, terrorizing you. Can God do that? It's actually two problems as I see it. The first one is what we call the problem of evil. Can, isn't the fact that there's evil in the world mean that there's no God? And then you have, according to this text, God sending the evil onto the situation. So we're going to deal with this, and I call this uh, a 700-level truth. Uh, several years ago, before the pandemic, I think it was like two weeks before the pandemic, I had uh, preached at a winter camp in Northern California in, in Lake Tahoe, and all these little Silicon Valley kids, all the churches were like from Fremont, Santa Clara, San Jose, all, that, all their parents were working for Google and and all the Silicon Valley companies and whatever. So they, these kids are smart kids, and they're all going to the finest schools in California because they want to get into UC system and Ivy League schools and all that. Well, I happened to just stumble upon something as I'm preaching them. I go, hey, this is a 700-level truth, which they grabbed onto. They just loved it. I go, well, you don't know this yet, but when you get to college, your freshman year, you're going to have 100 level. Your sophomore year is 200 level. Your junior year is 300 level. So all your classes in your fourth year will be 400 level. And if you go to graduate school, it keeps on going. 500, 600, 700. And if you go get a doctorate, of some, it just keeps on going. And so this is what I call 700 level truth. And it just took over the camp. They, the kids loved it. I didn't realize what I was kind of, you know, I stepped into something that I didn't realize. But you go to lunchtime and they're like, I don't expect you to understand this is a 700 level truth. 
And they just grabbed onto it because they're all about education. They loved it. Well, this is what we're going to classify as a 700 level truth, meaning this kind of seminary topic. We're, we're now entering CAMCC University. Now, I say all that because if you're new to the faith, you, you look at this and go, wow, this is way over my head. Well, well, don't let it discourage you because being introduced to the topic right now is going to make you that much more ready for it later when it's introduced again. Okay? So don't let it discourage you. And if you're in the faith for several years now, hopefully you'll dive and go, okay, I'm ready for this to chomp on this concept. Uh, the problem of evil is a problem that you've probably heard before, that God is either not good or he's not powerful enough because there's evil in the world. The fact that there's evil in the world means that God's not good, or it means that God's not powerful. He's not all powerful. It must mean that because there's evil in the world. That's what we would classify as a problem of evil. Now, that's just the very presence of evil in this world. We're not even talking yet about God sending evil. That's a, another level. Now, what I want to do is I want to discuss to you the common argument that's used by Christians today in evangelical Christendom um, and, and, and share with you. And, and I think a lot of us will resonate with this argument and reasoning. The problem is I find it to be theologically inconsistent, and I cannot espouse it. Now that's going to come as shocking, but I'm just going to give you the rationale, and then I'm going to tell you why I can't espouse it theologically. Most of the time when we come upon this, um, this discussion about evil in the world, Christians will jump to what I call the, art, uh, the robot argument. God didn't want us to be robots. God wanted us to choose him. True love is a love of choice. And so therefore, God had to allow for either uh, righteousness or evil, God or not God, so that we could choose him. And in our own free will, we choose God, and that's true love. And so the reason there's evil in the world today is because God wanted to allow us for a choice, because in that choice, we can prove that we love him by choice, and that's true love. And if you don't have that, you don't have true love. So he gives us free will to decide whether or not we want him or not. That is the most common rationale that Christians use. And it's actually a good rationale. It gets them out of every discussion that they have with their friends about the problem of evil. The problem with that is that the way that free will is described in that argument, there's only two people on the earth who've had that, free, that type of free will, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created by God without any disposition towards anything negative, without any kind of sinful disposition, anything. They were just creations of God, and they truly could choose God or not God. And Adam, when he sinned, according to the scriptures, specifically Romans 5, there is a sin nature that we all inherit because of it. We get this disease called sin that affects our entire being. It affects our nature. Our nature is now sinful and so the only people who had that real true free will to choose God would be Adam and Eve. We all inherited sin nature. And to assume that that nature isn't affected in this decision to choose God or not God doesn't make sense when the sin nature affects everything else. David said in Psalm 51 that I was conceived in sin. Now, what he's not saying is that his parents somehow did something immoral at at the point of his conception, what he's saying is that even at the point of conception, I already was tainted with the tentacles of sin on myself. Before I could ever talk, before I could ever do anything, I was already tainted by sin. Sin has been there from the very beginning. It affects everything. So, so this idea that, that my will isn't somehow marred or, 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 or affected by the sin nature, that just doesn't seem consistent. 
It doesn't seem consistent. Uh, I'll prove it to you. The fact that we are all born with a sin nature. This is why your kid at a year and a half years old knows how to do wrong without ever being trained. Like, how do they know how to lie? How do they know how to deceive? How do they know how to hide? How do, who taught them that? Before they were even going to church and learning from your kids, they already knew how to do wrong. <laughs> who taught them? They have it in their nature. It's a part of their nature. We inherit a sinful nature. So I cannot tell people that you have a free will. I'm saying your free will is tainted by who you are, by the very nature of who you are. So how do we answer this question? God is not, uh, uh, he's either not good or not all powerful if there's evil in the world. Well, let me tell you a different angle on how I would approach it. First of all, I just want to point out some assumptions that the argument makes. The assumption is that God would obviously value the same thing that I would value in my humanistic mind. There should be no evil. God obviously values that because I value it. But the point that we start putting God underneath our mindset, what are we doing? We're placing ourselves above him and we're making a big assumption that all of a sudden God wouldn't want evil in this world. Romans 9 seems to suggest that God gets glory from dealing from evil. So God gets glory when he deals with the evil. When he writes the wrong, he gets glory. If there was no evil, he wouldn't be able to write the wrong. And if he wasn't able to write the wrong, he couldn't get glory for doing it. If there was no evil in the world, then God wouldn't get glory from one of his attributes, namely the wrath of God. And that may be a harder concept to grasp, but, but he's God. In fact, if you wanted to do some more deeper study on this, I would read Romans chapter 9 and study it. There's a part in Romans chapter 9 where Paul writes, does the clay ever say to the potter, I don't like the way I was formed? Does a hunk of clay ever say, you know what, I really wanted to be, you know, like a, uh, a um, a container for coffee. What do they call this? Coffee. I really wanted to be a coffee mug. But you made me into a bowl so we can clean people's feet. The clay doesn't say anything to the potter about how it's being. You know why? Because it's an inanimate object. And he, the analogy is, we are the inanimate objects in comparison to God. Who are we to question God about these things? That's what it says. We understand that God is absolutely sovereign, 100% sovereign, absolutely in control of all things. That means even over evil. So the question would be, how can God send tormenting spirits? We know that he does. Apparently, he's sovereign over all things. How can he do it? Now, uh, to dive into that, I just want to say this, that there is an active sense and a passive sense in different um, verbal ideas. Um, God can either be actively dispatching these spirits or he can be passively allowing Satan permission to dispatch these spirits and it can be a part of the same action. We see this kind of thing in Job where there is this interaction between God and Satan and Job's in the middle and here is Satan saying, give me access to his life. Let me, let me mess up his body. Let me mess with his family and then he'll, and then he'll turn against you. And, and finally God says, fine, I will give you access to Job's life. So there is God saying, in a passive way, you can have access, and yet Satan is the one who's the active agent in bringing on the torment in Job's life. We also see this kind of thing when uh, David, it says, is incited to number the troops. 
We see this both in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Same event, just two different um, um, uh, renditions of the same event. And what happens is that David is incited to count his troops. Like, what does it matter if you count your troops? Well, in God's paradigm, when you count your troops and I find out, how many troops do I have? Do I have a million? Do I have two million? Do I have three million? Well, once I find I have three million, then I can start thinking, I can win this battle without God. And so don't ever number your troops because you're always relying on God to win your battles. That would be the sinful proposition there. Well, David makes the mistake in one situation to number his troops. And it says that he was incited to number the troops. What's interesting is, do you know who incited him to number the troops in 2 Samuel chapter 24? God. But if you look at the same occurrence in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1, do you know who incited David to number the troops? Satan. How is that possible? Well, God passively allowed Satan to actively incite David to number the troops. So there's a passive and an active sense in these things. And I think that's what's going on with God. Did God author evil in this world? Uh, he certainly allowed for it. I can tell you that. Does he send, does he actively send spirits to torment you? I don't think he does that, but he can release his hand of protection and allow the enemy to go do so in a passive sense. You see, the problem of evil isn't a problem for God. He's God. The problem of evil is a problem for us. Do we accept our understanding of God, even though there's evil in this world? Will we subject ourselves and subordinate ourselves to God, even though he's allowed evil in this world? Why did God allow evil in this world? I don't know, but I can tell you this, that when he deals with it, he gets glory. And had he not allowed evil in this world, he would not be able to get glory from dealing with it. That is our issue now to process that and be accepting of a God who can do whatever he wants to do. I used to explain it to junior hires all the time. When I go to the restroom and I find a spider in my uh, bathtub, he's going to die. Sorry, it's my bathtub. Well, it's a living thing. Yep, well, not anymore. He's dead. He's in my bathtub. The spider or the ant or whatever doesn't get to say anything. Is a spider or an ant. He's gone. And I think when we start receiving and understanding that we're the ant and we're the spider and he's God, we're at a lot better place rather than subjecting him to our understanding. Can you imagine the spider saying, wait, before you kill me, I want to understand why you're going to kill me. No, it's not a discussion. It's just whether or not I squish you or drown you. That's, that's, anyway. Well, the result is even the people around him go, man, you are in a bad way. God is haunting you. And so let us find a, mu a, a musician to help you soothe you. We'll find somebody who, who, who uh, you know, can play the harp or a lyre. Think a string instrument more like a guitar than you would like a harpsichord. And we'll bring that person in. And whenever the spirit comes upon you and you feel, he'll play it and you'll feel better. But not lost on us here is that the source of the agony is not necessarily what you might expect. You could say it's a result of his own actions. Constantly, he said, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God, no, God. And now he has the consequences of that. Or you could say from the text, he's getting his consequences directly from God. Not exactly what you might expect. What realities can we sometimes come across as it relates to our own emotional dysfunctions? First, there can be 
uh, an unexpected source of our agony. And secondly, there can be an unexpected source to our relief. Just like there's an unexpected source for your agony, there can be an unexpected source for your relief. I want you to see this starting in verse 18. It says this, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Circle that, underline that, highlight that, because the Lord is not with Saul anymore, but he is with David. Therefore, Saul sent messages to Jesse, David's dad, send David your son, who is with the sheep. Interestingly enough, he's already been anointed to be the king of Israel, but in his humility, he's right back with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and wine and a, and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with David, his son, to Saul. I'm going to send a gift. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. And, and, and Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain here. In my service, where he's found favor in my sight, and whenever the harmful spirit of God, from God, here's another time in the text, it says it's from God, was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. What realities can sometimes come across as it relates to our own emotional uh, uh, dysfunction, so there can be an unexpected source for relief. Here's the person who's going to eventually replace Saul as king, and yet that's the person that Saul needs to go to to get some relief. The hand of God is off of Saul and on David. If you want any kind of uh, um, uh, good fortunes thereof, you're going to have to be in the presence of David to get them, because you can't get them on your own. It says of David, he's a man of great repute. He, he, he's good at playing a harp and a lyre. He is, uh, he's He's a man of valor, a man of war. The idea is he's a well-trained fighter. Likely, it's that his family has a reputation that precedes him, a reputation that he himself in chapter 17 would end up emulating. He's a man who can, who can, who can handle things with his hands. He's prudent in speech. He's well-spoken. He's a good, uh, he has a good presence about him. He looks the part. And the Lord is with him, kind of the climax of the passage God is with him now and not with Saul. Saul takes to David whenever the tormenting spirit comes about him, finds relief in David playing his instrument. First, Saul asks permission, can you, can you let me have your son enter into my service as an armor bearer? Falls in love with him after dad sends a, basically a donkey load of bread uh, to him, passes the initial test, says, would you let him stay here permanently? Um, let him be a permanent fixture to my service. He is beneficial to me. He's found favor to my eye. And the big irony here is the king is becoming dependent on one who is designated to succeed him. And it's really an irony that we're going to watch throughout the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Now, there's some bottom shelf realities here. I told you we had 700 level truth. We had to expand our minds to think about that. But there is actually some cookies on the bottom shelf here that we can grab onto. And that is this, there is a positive discipline that you could use to settle yourself when you're bent out of shape emotionally, when you find yourself at a low, low, when you find yourself kind of depressed or in distress, there are kind of positive disciplines out there that can help you through that funkiness. For some people, it's running and uh, using, letting the endorphins come out as you run. For some people, it's working out. For some people, it's a, a hobby, maybe even playing an instrument. For some people, it's listening to music, classical or, or smooth jazz. Uh, I just picked up my daughter on Friday night. There was a local pool party for the youth ministry. And she said, I want to listen to smooth jazz. And on my car, you can just press the app that says smooth jazz. 
And I'd never listened to smooth jazz before. And I was listening, I was like, wow, this is really cool. It's nice. I can feel my heartbeat like slow down while I'm listening to this. Have you ever noticed that about music? They can do that, can settle you down. For some people, it's like walking the beach. They just love hearing the ocean. I'm one of those people. Anybody else like that? I was just at the beach yesterday, the day before. I walk it, I'll, you know, do three miles. I'll pray over the message. I'll think about you guys, pray over you guys. And I just, that wave that keeps on coming constantly, I don't know what it is about, just feeds my soul. My mom was like that when she was stressed out. She'd go to the beach, lay down, and just listen to the waves. It's like a constant reminder that God is sovereign and in control. Everything else in life needs, needs a switch. You go into your room and it's, sorry, you got to flip the light switch on. It's cold. You got to push a button so you can put the heater on. You know, everything has a switch. The ocean has no switch. It just keeps on coming without anybody turning on a switch. Sometimes it's high tide, sometimes it's low tide. But you just hear that wave after wave after wave, seemingly like God saying, I'm still here. I've always been here. I will always be here. I'm the one who allows the, the waves to move at my every whim. There are things that you can do to settle yourself down. For some, it's prayer, it's worship music, it's controlling your breathing while acknowledging God's sovereignty. I don't have to breathe as hard and as fast. I can control my breathing. Why? Because God is in control. I can slow down. I can recognize that he's sovereign over all things. I can realize that what, the worst thing that can happen to me in this world is that I die and then I'm transported, teleported to heaven, paradise. That's the worst thing that can happen to me. Let me give you an illustration. In June, I went uh, to Columbia, South America. My brother went, my sister went. My sister and her husband have a new baby boy. He's like six months old. And so they wouldn't let them pre-check. They wouldn't give them um, their seats on the plane because they had to do something with the baby. I don't know. So by the time they got through um, that international LAX, they said, "Um, we don't have any more coach seats available. Well, I would have pre-checked like 24 hours ago. I would have checked in 24 hours ago, but you guys wouldn't let me. And now you don't have any seats. So what does that mean? We can't go? They go, no. What that means is we're going to have to upgrade you to first class, which means that on an international flight that your chair turns into a bed and you have a big screen TV and the food's better. And she's like, yes, I've been upgraded, right? Why is it as Christians, when we think about death, we don't go, yes, upgrade. They go, oh man, I don't know if I want that. Listen, there's no pain, no sorrow, no tears. It's an upgrade. So that when you're going through whatever you're going through in life and it's, and and, you know, you're feeling this internal, emotional, mental anguish inside. Wait a second. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He's not stepping off. The worst thing that can happen to me is I get upgraded to heaven. I'm going to be all right. I can bring down my breathing and control it because it's in control of all things. There's some low level hanging fruit here that you can really take and move forward. I have a friend who is a pastor. I won't say the name of the church or his name. He's actually um, um, really popular in America and Canada. And, uh, and I was a part of this uh, cohort thing a couple years ago. And so he was the guy who was kind of mentoring us all. And he has Tourette's syndrome. This is amazing. This dude speaks to probably 10,000 people at a time at his church. And he has Tourette's. So when he's preaching, you can see his tics. Like, and he just keeps on going. And, he's, and it works. I'm telling you, there's a following that love this guy. He's really intelligent, really smart guy. And he was telling us when I first, when I was a kid, my Tourette's would, um, would come out in certain ways. I don't know if you know this, but Tourette's syndrome, you can have like a cussing version of your tics. 
So when you tick, you also use profanity? That's like a thing with Tourette's. And he goes, when I was younger, I actually struggled with the cussing version of Tourette's. I'm like, dude, this is, this is something. Because I, I know Christians, you can't get on the stage and say a bad word. You're not going to be able to keep that job, bro. So tell me how you figured out how you could stop cussing so that you could preach. Because the thing is, the tick comes, and then you say a word, and it's not like you're not necessarily fully in control. How did you get control of that? And you know what he told me? He goes, I'll be honest with you, dude. It was the sovereignty of God. I started meditating on how God is in control of all things. And for some reason, I was able to bring that part of the Tourette's into control. He still ticks, but he doesn't cuss when he's talking. Isn't that amazing? I thought that was pretty profound. Well, there are some low-hanging fruit there. There's a way for you to get a control of your emotional funkiness. There's a way for us to do it. Find that way and utilize it. But understand this, no matter what the source of your emotional distress is, God is always the solution. It is our big idea today. No matter what the source of your emotional distress is, God is always the solution. Whether it was act one of Saul's life, act two in the middle of Saul's life, or act three, the end of Saul's life, God was always the solution. He just didn't take it. He could have turned to God in act one. But he didn't do that. He could have turned to God in Act 2 when, he, when, when the, the funkiness of Act 1 and, and the consequences of those actions were now in Act 2. Great time to turn back to God, but he didn't do that. And he could have turned to God in Act 3, which is like, you know what, Act 1, I did these actions. Act 2 was the consequences of those actions. And Act 3 is I just spent 20 years stubborn not turning back to God. He still could have turned to God in Act 3, but he didn't do that. No matter what the source of your emotional distress is, you yourself, your own decisions, God's consequences on your life, God is always the solution. The question is, will you turn to him? He's always the key. He's always the answer. He's always the solution to your emotional distress and turmoil. But will you turn to him? You know, uh, many of you know that I was a middle school pastor for 12 years before I do what I do today and enjoyed many, uh, all, 100% of that timeline. I really enjoyed middle school students. I think that sometimes us parents and adults can learn a lot from a 12-year-old kid. For instance, let's take Susie. Susie is a seventh grade girl. She's probably the... uh, most quick-witted, brightest, most intelligent student that the pastor has ever seen in his ministry. When she walks in the room, she has the aura. She lights up the room. Her smile makes everybody feel better. She's that kind of student. The middle school pastor is bringing a new series onto the scene on Sunday morning, saying, we're going to dive in deeper into our faiths. Faiths every week, I'm going to divide the room into two, and we're going to debate a theological topic that's been debated for centuries. I'm going to bring the topic, and I'm going to make you the protagonist, and you the antagonist, and you're going to debate it. After a half an hour studying it, you'll debate each other in hopes that they will all wrestle with their faith on a level that they've never wrestled with it before. So you walked in, and week one was Calvin versus Arminianism. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Does God choose you, or do you choose God? Which one is it? Study it, debate it. Week two was, was the Trinity. How can God be three persons and yet be one essence? How was God... The, the, the person of the Father in heaven and the person of the Son on earth dying on the cross, and yet they're of the same essence. How does that work out? Week three was the peccability and impeccability of Christ. Christ was human, right? Yes. Christ was divine, right? Yes. Well, in his humanity, he was tempted, right? Yes. Could he have ever fallen into sin? If the answer is yes, he could fall into sin, then that makes him human, but not divine. If the answer is no, that he could not possibly have fallen into sin, that makes him divine, but not human 
These are the things you're going to debate. Half an hour of study, half an hour of debate. Every week, he'd see Susie in the hallway. Susie, what'd you think of the debate? What'd you think of the theology behind what we were saying? She'd go, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Whatever. The next week, he saw her again. And this time, it was right before she was picked up by her parents. Susie, what'd you think this week? The whole Trinity thing. How did that work out in your mind? Oh, Jesus Christ. Third week, finally, when they're wrapping up the series in front of all the students, he points Susie out in front of everybody. Susie, what'd you think of the last three weeks? What was going on in your mind as we debated these concepts? They've been debated for centuries amongst Christians. She goes, oh, Jesus Christ. He goes, well, thank you for the Sunday school answer, Susie. I get that you can't come to church and say Jesus Christ and be wrong. And she goes, oh, no, no. Pastor, it's a little deeper than that. It's a little more than that. Whether God chooses us or we choose him, I'm not sure. But one thing I am sure of is that, uh, one thing I am certain of is that Jesus Christ is the answer to all of our questions. How God could be in heaven and on earth at the same time as separate persons and yet the same essence, I have no clue. But one thing I'm quite certain is that Jesus is a solution to every problem. Whether Christ could have or could not have sinned on earth and the ramifications thereof on his humanity and his divinity, that's challenging. But one thing is not challenging is that Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks every spiritual difficulty. Finally, the middle school pastor realized it wasn't that she was trying to get out of a complex question. She was just answering a more important one. And I hope you realize the same thing today. No matter where you are in your emotional distress or even your walk with God, Jesus is the solution, the answer, and the key. No matter the source of your emotional distress, God is always the solution. You could be in act one right now. Like <laughs> I'm just hearing this for the first time. I'm in, I'm all in. When do I get baptized? I'm ready to go. Great time to turn to God. You can be in act two right now. You don't understand, Pastor, I've done things and I'm dealing with the ramifications, the consequences of those things from act one. I'm now in act two. And you know what? It's a great time to turn to God. He'll meet you right there. You can be in act three, which is, Pastor, you don't understand. I did things in act one that, that, I, that I regret. And then I got the consequences in act two of my life. And now in act three, I realize I just spent 20 years in stubbornness. And yet it's still the best time to turn to him. Why? Because he's always the solution to whatever emotional, spiritual distress you might have. Whether you brought it on yourself or there's a spirit haunting you, Jesus Christ is the answer. Little Susie had it right. Jesus Christ. That's my answer. He's a solution. He's the answer. He's the key. The question is, are we going to live life like Saul and refuse him? Or are we going to turn back to him and say, okay, you're God. I'm not. I'm ready to place myself underneath you. Bow my knee, bow my head to the all supreme and sovereign God. Why don't you bow your heads and pray with me as we continue on this morning. Father, uh, Oftentimes, we find ourselves relating to texts in the scriptures in good ways and challenging ways. And I pray right now, no matter where every one of us are, whether in the first act, second act, or third act of our lives, that we would take the challenge of turning back to you, acknowledging you, 
for you are always the solution. Remembering that you're sovereign, you're in control, you're God and I'm not. Would you allow us to live in that reality? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend to introduce you. This is Katie Anderson, great friend of mine. We've known each other for apparently over 20 years, long, long time. And uh, Katie and I go back to when our kids were in diapers. We were in a growth group together and our kids that were in diapers are now in college. And so it's been a little while. And as I set this up, I just need to remind you that seven years ago, several years ago, when I came to Camarillo Community Church, we set a goal with our elders and leaders um, to, to really take a tenth of every dollar that came into our church and spend it outside of our walls. We wanted to, to create a discipline for ourselves that $10 every, every hundred, uh, you know, 1,000 every, every 10,000 would go outside and not go to us, but to some other God-oriented thing, whether that's locally, local missions, or globally, global missions. And for years, we were trying to raise the percentage and raise the percentage, and it took some discipline. Years later, I got on the stage, and I said, we're at 9.6%, or we're rounding up, baby. We're at 10. Kenny tells me today we are 100% at, well, we're at 10%. We're not at 100%. But we're, we got to that 10% mark, so whenever you give, you just need to know that 10% of those funds go right out the doors. Well, that put us in a position where we had to find new missionaries. We had all this money. We have a $1.3 million budget. So that means $130,000 go out these walls every year. When you give to us, that's what goes out. And so one of the people that we came into uh, was Katie, who does some amazing stuff. I've been waiting two years to get her on the stage so she can share with you exactly what she does. But as she talks, I want you to remember this. When you give to the Lord through the vehicle of Camarillo Community Church, this is what you allow us to support. So Katie, please tell us uh, about She is Safe and why you started working there. Sure. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, in short, She is Safe envisions every girl safe and free. And I sat in an audience 16 years ago, and I heard the founder of She is Safe, Michelle Ricketts, speak. And she began to share these, little, these stories of these little girls who were forced to marry men three, four, five times their ages, and others who were abused, who were trafficked or killed just because they were female. I could hardly catch my breath. I could not believe these things were happening, and I felt totally paralyzed. But then she talked about these amazing local Christians who came alongside these women and these girls and offered hope and tangible help. She is safe, prevents, rescues, and restores women and girls from abuse and slavery in these types of countries, equipping them to build lives of freedom and faith for a strong future. Over the last 20 years, our programs have had the opportunity to benefit more than 300,000 individual beneficiaries. And today I serve as the Vice President of International Ministry, overseeing a team of 10 internationally focused staff who collaborate with these locally led organizations to help women make their way out of crushing circumstances and to find their hope in Christ. Pretty awesome, right? Can you tell us a little more about modern slavery and what it looks like in the places that you work? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just tell you a story about one of the girls I met this past year when I was in, in, in India. It was this past fall and I walked into this room and cowering in the corner, there was a young girl, she's about 15 years old. She was hunched over. She would never look at me while I was there. She was withdrawn, she was malnourished. She was just really fragile and really sick. 
And in her 15 years of life, she's endured more abuse than you or I can dare to imagine. When she was just a child, her father began selling her for sex to anyone who would buy. And when she became old enough and she got pregnant, he sold her baby. This is a father selling his daughter and his grandchild. And to him, her only worth was in what he could get for her and from her. And I've sat across the table from many over the last 16 years that I've been on staff who have these horrific pasts and presents, and they see no way forward, no way of hope. Uh, and they have no idea how valuable they are. In fact, there's about 50 million slaves in the world today across all forms of slavery. That's a big number. So to envision that, imagine every man, every woman, every child in all of California, in all of Oregon, in all of Washington. That's right, about 50 million people. 29 million of those live in Asia and the Pacific. That's six out of every 10 trafficking victims. Well over half are female and a quarter are children. But if you get into those areas that she has safe works, the areas of forced marriage and sexual slavery, that proportion of females changes dramatically. But there is hope. When I returned to India this past spring, I got to see Deepika again. And this time, she was flittering around the room. Her eyes were bright. She was telling me about her classes and her favorite subject in school, it's art. And she pulled out a hand-woven mat that she had made and she was selling. Now, she's got a long road to recovery. I'm not going to paint a different picture than that, but her transformation was night and day. And as we talked to our coworkers about what had happened, they said she finally opened up because she realized for the first time in her life, nobody was trying to hurt her. For the first time in she life, she is safe. And I got to go that evening to go see Topeka again with another group of teenagers who themselves are making their way out of those crushing circumstances. They're learning spoken English. They're learning job skills and other things like that. And they're growing in confidence together. And we get to be a part, with your help, of transforming over 70,000 girls like Topeka over the course of a year. That's awesome. We were just remarking in the early hour that this is so cool. Like, you're so rad, and what you're doing is so rad, and I get, and like, I know you. You know what I mean? And I just think that's so awesome. So we're a church that likes to be involved, so tell us how we could be more involved with this problem. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, modern slavery, it's a complex issue, and there's not simple solutions, but there are some things that you can do to make a big difference. If you're, if you're passionate about slavery here in the United States, uh, those who are at highest risk for trafficking are those who are coming from unstable homes and from the streets. So one of the very best ways to get involved is to provide a safe, stable home and loving environment for those at-risk kids. And from my perspective, the best way to do that is through the foster care system. To get involved as a foster family, to provide respite care for those, or to provide needed supplies. Or as Dave was mentioning earlier, I heard about a great ministry, Zoe Ministries, uh, that provides some aftercare. Get plugged in there. And while you're doing that, remember that 98% of those in modern slavery live overseas. So first, pray. Second, advocate for ministries like She is Safe. When it, you can like us on social media and post a repost some of the things we have, and with the elevated conversation around the Sound of Freedom movie, whenever you see a post about the Sound of Freedom, 
grab something from She is Safe, go into that comment box and talk about what an amazing ministry She is Safe or another one is. Because by doing that, you're expanding our reach and impact. And there's way more ways to get involved. So come talk to me after uh, the church at the table back there. Awesome. Uh, there is going to be a way to um, even uh, double down even some more today. And Kenny will tell you how you can be a part of that uh, even this afternoon. I just want you to hear this. Thank you so much for what you do to our, uh, as far as being generous with our church. It allows us to do so much more than just even what you see on the stage here. I mean, this is an amazing ministry that we're able to do because of the gifts of our people. So just know that it's not insignificant at all, and we appreciate you. I get excited. I've been wanting uh, Katie to come for a couple of years now. We haven't been able to figure out the dates, but who knows? Maybe there's some ways that we can get even more involved in the future with this ministry. So with that, would you please give a hand to Katie and make sure you see her afterwards. So glad you got a chance to meet Katie. If you want to learn more about her ministry, she has a table on the patio. She would love to talk to you after the service, as well as we're hosting a luncheon in the other building. We'll start um, about 12.15, 12.30-ish. Uh, lunch is provided. If you want to come for about an hour, hear more about our ministry, have a lunch together with some church people, uh, you're all invited if you're interested in that. Okay, um, we're going to get back to God. We don't pass the plate here in this church, um, but if you consider this your church home and you're interested in getting involved in giving and worshiping God that way, you can do so by going to campcc.net, click give at the top of the page, text the amount you'd like to donate to 84321, or we have an offering box um, in the lobby where you can uh, give that way as well. But before you go today, let's check out this video of what's coming up next at Camp CC. Camp CC, I'm Nevaeh Hurtado and I'm part of the middle school ministry and I'm glad that you are here with us today. If today's your first time with us, welcome. If it's your second time with us, glad you're back. If you're our first time guest, we have a $5 Starbucks gift card for you. All you do is grab a connected card, fill it out both sides, and take it to the welcome counter in the lobby. Or scan this QR code with your phone's camera and let the welcome counter know you filled it out digitally. You can also let us know how we can be praying for you on that card as well. If this is time number two for filling out a connection card, we have a $10 gift card to In-N-Out Burger. Just let us know it's your second time at the welcome counter and it's going home with you. We will also invite you to our all-you-can-eat dessert with our pastors, elders, and staff. If you're watching online, go to campcc.net slash next steps. There are many great things coming up at Camp CC. Be thinking about who you will invite to join you. September, growth groups are kicking off next month. This is a great time to connect with others in our church. It feels like a family as you do life together. Sign-ups coming in September. If you can't wait, email jimmoyer at campcc.net or go to campcc.net slash groups. Sunday, October 8th, Ryan Stevenson in concert at 7 p.m. Camp CC welcomes Dove Award winning and Billboard charting artist Ryan Stevenson. You know his hits such as Eye of the Storm, Amadeo, and The Gospel. And co-writing Toby Mac's Grammy-nominated number one song, Speak Life. Speak life Tickets available on our website. October 20th through the 22nd, Women's Retreat. Ladies, you can now sign up for the women's retreat held at Mount Crags in Calabasas at campcc.net slash women. For more info, connect with Allison at campcc.net. To stay in the loop 
of what's going on at Camp CC, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more info on any of these events, go to campcc.net. My name's Stan Ziegler. I am a part of our worship team. If you said yes to Jesus for the first time this morning, I invite you to stop by in our welcome counter on your way out on the left side. If you're watching online, you can connect with us online. And we want to walk with you through your journey of faith with Jesus. Uh, also, would you be praying for someone that you can invite to come to church with you next week? Also, I invite you to join us on the patio for some fellowship and coffee and donuts. And also, don't forget to stop by at the growth groups table and sign up for a growth group that starts uh, next month. We'll see you next week.